Lord, we just pray that you might prepare our hearts today to receive something from you. Search our hearts, O God, and know us. Lord, you know when we rise, you know when we sit, you know our ins, you know our outs. Lord, you know us from the inside out. Search me and test me, O God, this morning, that in our hearts there may be found a wellspring of life, that we might be as your people, drawn to your presence. Lord, that we might be as your people, strengthened by grace. God, that as we have heard even today, that true love casts out all fear. And that's what we pray for today, that your love, poured out by your Spirit, might touch every single heart. So God, as we come around your word today, I just pray that you might speak in a new way, encourage and challenge as we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's great to come and share with you here today. And what we are seeking to do today and over the next few weeks is to explore a very relevant theme around God's purpose of deliverance and faith. And for that reason, the title that we're going to be sharing is along the line of From Captivity to Conquest. This explores very much Israel's journey of faith that took them from slavery through to sonship. You see, the Bible speaks very clearly about the fact that God has delivered or translated us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son of God. That the work of salvation, in a spiritual sense, was typified and foreshadowed in how God delivered his people up out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land. And as we understand something of that wonderful journey, there are so many lessons that we can learn in terms of how that relates to us. You know, Paul is very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 how what God did historically in the life of Israel is very much a prophetic pattern for us to understand under the New Testament. As God rescued them physically, yes, with a spiritual dimension, he has rescued us spiritually. That their journey is our journey. And I think this is something that we need to understand because for Israel, it was one thing to be delivered from Egypt, but it was another thing to be brought into the promised land. And unfortunately, there are those who know the joy of salvation but never enter into the fullness of what God has promised them. They're almost wilderness believers who are stuck in this no man's land between, yes, they are saved, but at the same time, they have not experienced the fullness of what God has for them. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at these themes and other ways in which God can encourage and help us. Now, before we look something of what I wanted to share with you today. The book of Exodus deals very much with deliverance. We know this, how even the name itself speaks of the release and the liberation of Israel from bondage. So as we look at an overarching theme for this book, the opening 18 chapters give us very much the word of the Lord concerning Israel being delivered from Egypt. So we have the great themes around Israel and Egypt. 
their suffering, how God remembered his covenant when he heard the cries of his people. Then we have the call of Moses in chapter 3, the servant of the Lord set apart. He spent 40 years in the wilderness and God then came to him in the glory of the burning bush and spoke to him, commissioned him and gave him an assignment to go back and set the people of God free. Then we have the ten plagues, the judgment of God upon Egypt, the sentence of death pronounced upon that pagan nation. And then we have the deliverance of Israel up out of Egypt and God's work of salvation. And we have very much the feast of Passover that was inaugurated and set as a benchmark for Israel's worship in their life moving forward. There are key messages also. And one of them is the way in which God worked in terms of his work in the life of Pharaoh. And actually on four occasions the Bible says of Pharaoh that he hardened his heart. But also it says that God hardened his heart. So we have this strange mystery around free will and divine sovereignty. But what we find is is that Pharaoh first of all hardened his own heart. And then God helped him out at a later date. So the work of God was being brought to fruition. Paul talks about this in Romans 9 through 11, how basically God can do whatever he wants to do. So we are the clay, he is the potter, and he can shape, and he can form, and he can create whatever he wants to do. Who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God, Paul says. God is free to do whatever he wants. We may not like that. We may be offended by the fact that God is actually in charge, but that is the reality of the sovereignty of God's perfect will. And then on three occasions, God says, let my people go. Who are those people? Well, Israel, they were slaves and had been for many generations. Now then, when God said, let my people go, he wasn't asking for permission He was making a direct word of command. In Genesis 1, we have a similar theme where God says, let there be light. And there was light. God wasn't asking for permission, but rather he was making a command of intention. So when God said, let my people go, he was stating the reality of what will come to pass. And we had the ten plagues, which were very much inspired. Instrumental in bringing about what God wanted to accomplish. So the first 18 chapters deal with the theme of the Exodus. Now from 19 through to 40, Israel now is camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. 19 through to 24, where the law of God is given. 25 to 31, Moses is given the blueprint for the tabernacle. God's dwelling place. 32 to 34, Israel unfortunately breaks the covenant. And then 35 to 40, the tabernacle is built. What is remarkable is that even in the face of God's overwhelming evidence of the fact that he was alive, that he had a perfect will for his people, God's people still rebelled. Even though God was there, whether that be a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud, or the parting of the Red Sea, or the judgment of God upon Egypt, the ten plagues, the provision of water in the wilderness, despite the miracles 
God's people still murmured when things didn't go their way. God's people still grumbled when they thought that God had brought them out into the wilderness for them to die. And I think there's lessons in there for us all, isn't there? Murmuring, grumblings, complaints. How easy it is to be guilty of these things, isn't it? God moves one moment, and then the next moment we face a trial, and suddenly we're complaining, thinking that God has forsaken us, and he's not interested in helping us anymore. So these are some of the lessons from Exodus, that despite God's overwhelming intervention in the life of his people, still they found fault with the Lord and reasons to complain. And the Bible says, tragically so, that it was through unbelief that they missed out on the promises of God. Because all those who came up out of Egypt, apart from the Levites, apart from Joshua and Caleb, and all those not numbered in the census, everyone else did not enter into the promised land. All those who experienced deliverance failed to enter into the fullness of what God had promised And there's a timeless lesson for us all in that, isn't there? Just because we're saved doesn't mean to say that we're walking in the fullness of what God has for our lives. The book of Hebrews says that it was because of unbelief that Israel failed to enter in. God says, you'll never enter my rest. Why? Because of unbelief. So if unbelief can rob Israel of their inheritance then how much more, if we fail to walk in faith, do we miss out on what God has for us? So what is the message of Exodus? Well, number one, God is faithful to his promises. That's the covenant upon which this act of deliverance was brought to fruition. God said that he would remember his covenant. That covenant made with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God remembered the word of the Lord that he gave to them as a people. And on that basis of that legal agreement, God delivered his people. Secondly, God wants to liberate his people from slavery. He has compassion upon us. He loves us, doesn't he? He wants us to know the liberty and the joy of salvation. Thirdly, God judges his enemies. The condemnation of God is clearly taught in the book of Exodus. And then fourthly, God's people always have a habit of rebelling. (laughs) Why is that? Why don't we just do what we're told? Why do we have to resist the Holy Spirit? Why do we find ourselves wanting to do our own thing? Well, that's the state of the human heart. And we need to understand that the very often crisis is part of the journey of faith. And sometimes God uses these things in order to help us and to strengthen us on our journey of faith. So just as we come to the word of the Lord here today, I wanted to read a passage of scripture found in Exodus 8 from verse 25 to 28 and then Exodus 10 and verse 11. This passage comes in chapter 8 after the fourth plague, which was flies. It says this, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord, our God, 
are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, they will not stone them, or will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord, our God, as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then we move down to Exodus 10 and verse 11. Now go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you are seeking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. What I wanted to share with you today is something of the challenges and the obstacles that very often that we can face as believers. Maybe hurdles that even the enemy wants to bring against us as we make a journey of faith. What we need to understand here today that what we see historically for Egypt is something of the journey of faith that we all face. In other words, Israel's journey in terms of deliverance began, yes, when God called Moses. So the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses then comes, and then we have the night of Passover. That feast of Passover commemorated every year in the first month of the Hebrew calendar, symbolised the greater Passover that we would have in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is our Passover, is he not? Jesus is the one who is the spotless Lamb of God, whose blood was sprinkled upon the high altar of the cross. And as the blood of Christ was applied to the doorposts and the lintels of our heart, so when the angel of death comes over, he passes over us. So we escape death, don't we? Death no longer has its victory. The grave no longer has its sting. We are delivered from death and become the church of the firstborn. So as the firstborn of the Israelites were saved, but the Egyptian firstborns were judged, so we are the church of the firstborn. Christ himself, the firstborn from amongst the dead. So all of this is relevant in terms of how we understand the journey of faith. But for Israel... Passover was the beginning. There was 40 years from Passover through to the point at which Joshua led them into the promised land. Lessons that needed to be learned. And there are things that I wanted to pick out from this passage of Scripture here today concerning some of the obstacles. And it's based upon what Pharaoh said to Moses and to Aaron. So as the plagues ensued, so Pharaoh's mind was influenced. One minute he was compliant, the next minute he was hardened. But what we find here is that after the fourth plague of flies, Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. So Egypt represents the world. Egypt represents the life of sin. God has delivered us from that place of bondage and captivity. But very often the enemy can come along and say to a person, well, you're saved, 
You know a new relationship with God, but you're now going to sacrifice, but you've got to stay in the land. Now, what does the land represent? Well, the world. Someone gets saved and thinks, well, I'm now born again, I'm going to heaven, but... And there's always a but. I'm going to go to church and maybe read my Bible, but I'm going to stay in the world. I'm still going to go to the places that I went before. I'm still going to live a life as was the case before I came to the Lord. I have this relationship with God. I'm going to sacrifice in the land. But God has not called us to be saved and to remain in the world, has he? He's not called us to be born again and to live the old life. For Israel, if they were going to honour the Lord and to sacrifice to his name, they had to do so beyond the borders of Egypt. If Egypt represents the world, then you can't worship the Lord and stay within the context of a life that was lived before you got saved. The Bible is full of scriptures that talk about the fact that God wants us to be in the world. Yes, this is where we live, but not of the world. God calls us to be a different people. And for Israel, God wanted them to live a life of holiness. Now, what does holiness mean? It simply means to be different. The Bible says God is holy, so therefore we should be holy. It's as simple as that. That's the benchmark. So God calls us, having received the promise of Passover and entered into new relationship with the Lord, God calls us to live and to depart, to leave our former life, to live lives that are different. So very often, the lie of the enemy, and in this case, symbolised by Pharaoh, is that, well, you can get saved, but stay in the world. Pharaoh said to Israel, yes, you can worship your God, but do so while still in slavery. Do so while still in Egypt. Do so while still in the world. But God doesn't call us to stay where we are, does he? He calls us to be a people who move on, pilgrims who make progress. That's the first challenge that very often people face. And in church life we face this. People get saved and there's this battle that is ensued whereby they struggle. Well, what kind of life does God want me to live? Well, it's certainly not according to how you used to live. To be born again means that you live a different life. Not in the world, but in the context of God's redeeming grace. So that's the first thing that Pharaoh said to Moses and Aaron. And then in verse 28, Pharaoh came up with another idea. He says, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. So therefore, we're making a bit of progress here. Pharaoh's coming around to Moses' way of thinking. But then he says this, only you must not go very far away. Stay within easy reach of the borders of the nation. Don't go too far because you'll have to come back. We need to make sure that we keep you within our gaze. Don't go too far. And very often this is another ploy of the enemy in terms of some of the challenges that we can face as believers. So we come to the Lord. We know his grace. 
We leave the world, but then the enemy says, look, you're born again, you go to church, you read the Bible, you pray, but don't go too far. Don't get too committed. Keep your options open. Pray a bit, read the Bible a bit, but don't get too enthusiastic. Don't get too committed. Go to church whenever you feel like it, but keep your options open. And Pharaoh said to these two leaders, you must not go very far away. Why? Because you're going to have to come back. And what the enemy loves to do is that he loves to keep almost a noose around our ankle or around our neck to prevent us from going too far. But God has not called us to a place where we come to faith and we only progress a bit. We only do a few things now to please the Lord. God calls us to a surrendered life, doesn't he? He calls us to a life where we lay aside all weight and sin. Not laying aside some weights and some sins. It's all or nothing. Jesus said it like this. Anyone who is to come after me must first of all deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. The cross-centred life is not a suggestion, it is a command. And yet very often we can fall into the trap of thinking, well, I'm going to get saved, but I'm not going to go too far. I'm not going to grow too much. I'm quite happy knowing that I'm going to heaven. But actually there's more than that. And that's a life that is surrendered to God. And that's what Israel struggled to come to terms with. That's where they fell. That's where they made their mistakes. Every time there was a crisis, the Israelites turned around and said to Moses, well, why have you brought us out here? Is it not so that we will perish? We'd be better off going back to Egypt. In other words, they would prefer the familiarity of slavery than the uncertainty of sonship. They preferred the familiarity of living as slaves because... At least there was food on the table. But to live the life of faith means that we take risks. That the future is often uncertain. The things aren't always clear. Battles are there to face. Difficulties arise. But we've got to be a people of faith. But that's going to take everything. God wants you to press in and to receive everything that he has for you. He doesn't want you to leave the world and you just walk over the borderline and the world is only a stone's throw away. He wants you in the promises of God. He wants you to experience the glory of God. He wants you in the promised land. Not in the middle, going around in circles as they did for 40 years. So let's be aware of the subtlety of how often the enemy can come to us and say, look... You can go and sacrifice to the Lord, but don't go too far. Don't get too enthusiastic. Don't commit too much to God's kingdom and will. Keep your options open. This very often can be the ploy of the enemy. And thirdly and finally, the third trick up Pharaoh's sleeve was in Exodus 10. He says, no, go. The men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. So here we have Moses being relatively compliant, but with the condition, as it says here, only the men can go. 
What does that mean? The women and the children have to remain behind. Because Pharaoh knew that if only the men go, then if their wives and children and families are back in Egypt, then obviously the men aren't going to run off. They're going to come back. But the deceit of the enemy here is that Pharaoh was seeking to divide the nation. And to divide is to conquer. He wanted to weaken the resolve of the people of God. How does this play out for us today? Well, as a church, we are a family together on a mission, are we not? We're called as one body, one people, one church, one Lord, one baptism, one hope, one faith. We're part of the body of Christ. Ephesians 4 talks about this, that the body grows and builds itself up in love. As every part does its work. God doesn't say, well... I've called you as the church, but only the men should mature in faith. Only certain individuals should grow in grace. Only the church leadership need to pray. And this is the way that this lie very often is teased out within the life of a local church. Only certain people should be enthusiastic about prayer. Only those set apart as intercessors should do all the weeping and the crying out before the Lord. It's as if Pharaoh is saying to us, well, you can go, you can leave the land, but only a certain group can go. But friends, that's not how we understand the word of the Lord. In fact, it is said in the Bible of Israel that they left and not one single hoof remained. In fact, God gave them favour whereby they plundered the wealth of the Egyptians, did they not? Silver and gold and precious stones, all of this was Egyptian gold, Egyptian stones and silver. So when they built the tabernacle, and we read of this in chapters 35 to 40, where did they get all the fine linen? Where did they get the gold and the silver to make the Ark of the Covenant, the menorah, the table of showbread? Where did they get all of that? The jewels on the breastplate of the high priest, where did they come from? They came from Egypt. Now you say, well, that's worldly, isn't it? Well, no, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. When God takes something, it may start out in Egypt, but once he sanctifies it, it becomes holy unto the Lord. That Egyptian gold and silver was sanctified by God and used to build his house there in the wilderness. God's purpose is that not one single hoof shall remain in Egypt. That Israel was to be delivered lock, stock and barrel. No one was to be left behind. Even the alien and the stranger who was found in the hope and in the home of the Israelite on the night of Passover shared in salvation. All those who partook of the land and went out in haste as they celebrated God's act of deliverance. When God saves his people, he saves us all. When God calls us to journey in faith, it's not a case of, well, some will go and some won't. God calls us all as a church to make progress. Not just a few, not just those who are more committed, but every single one of us pursuing God's will for our lives. Amen? That's what I believe the word of the Lord would remind us of. But the enemy will say, well... You can progress, but 
You're on your own. Just the men. You can move on. You can grow in grace, husband. But it doesn't matter about your family. Or to the wife. Well, you can grow in prayer, but it doesn't really matter about your husband. You just press into me. Forget about everyone else. Well, the fact of the matter is we do need to take responsibility for our own lives, but not at the expense of others. Like with Moses, when God threatened to punish Israel and wipe them off the face of the map, God said, I'm going to destroy this people. But Moses said, look, if you're going to destroy them, you've got to write my name and take it out of the book. Judge me as well. If you're going to remove their names from the book, remove my name as well. In fact, Paul in Romans talks in a similar vein when he says, you know, I wouldn't that I myself would be cut off for the sake of my people, Israel of the flesh. In other words, Paul was saying, look, if Israel of the flesh is not going to make it into heaven, then count me out as well. Paul was willing to forego his own salvation for the sake of his brothers and sisters in the flesh. And Paul talks about this, obviously, in Romans 9 through 11. Either we all go or none of us go. Why? Because we're a church, we're a people, we're a community of faith. And what God wants for us is not for some to go and for some to remain. God wants us all to progress, doesn't he? As one people. In our own relationship with God, our understanding of his will, understanding of his word, in prayer, in faithful service, all of this and more. He wants us all in our own lives to be a people who are making progress. None to be left behind, but that all may journey from where God brings us from, Egypt, to the place where he intends us to go, the promised land. So I just wanted to share with you these thoughts here today, but let's be mindful of some of the speed bumps on this highway of faith. When God calls us to a new life, he doesn't say, you're now born again, but you can live how you used to live before. Sacrificing the land, he doesn't say that. He says, you've got to get up and pack your bags and leave. He also says, well, if you're going to leave, then there's a promised land to possess. I've not called you to leave Egypt, then to live the rest of your life in the wilderness. There's a land to possess. Keep going until you've laid hold of everything that God has for you. But we do so as a company of people, together as the church of God on a mission, that we might all move forward in our own relationships with the Lord. Our own understanding of his will. We must all be a people who are keeping in step with God. And knowing his direction and his will. Amen. Let's just pray together, shall we? Father, today, today Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you of what you remind us of. And how you've called us to be pilgrims who make progress. So, Father, that is the word of the Lord into our hearts, I believe. Father, from your scriptures. So, Lord, we take this word and we say, God, just enthuse it into our lives in the name of Jesus. And everyone said together, Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you.